Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are continuing our series today with Jason Jewell talking about religious toleration in colonial America. So what this is, is if you haven't been jumping in for the last few weeks, is that we did a webinar that was live early 2018. And now what we're doing is we're opening that up for everybody to listen to. And this is a great venue to do that, which is our podcast. So Dr. Jewel has been a guest on our podcast a, a couple times. And in this case, he's kind of a guest because he did this teaching thing for us. So the goal of the webinar was to dive into issues that were at the intersection of faith and freedom. So this webinar examines the foundational documents that early Americans relied on and produced to win the battle for religious liberty. So it'll provide resources for Christian libertarians if you want to engage you know, in this renewed battle, because this is a precious freedom we don't want to take for granted. So with that, I will turn this over to the webinar, and I hope you enjoy. Let me introduce the speaker, Jason Jewell. He's a professor and chairman of the Department of Humanities at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. He's also a faculty member at Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, member of the editorial board of LCI's new academic research journal, The Christian Libertarian Review. Thank you all for coming to this. This is actually the first time I've ever done a presentation on a webinar, so I'm hoping all my tech will work correctly. I've got a number of historical documents to share with you this evening, a number of quotes to share with you, and hopefully you'll find this material engaging and, and just the first step for your own study and reading into this period of American history. I do want to say here at the outset that a lot of times it seems when I'm talking to students or talking to uh, Christian libertarians, that there's this sort of vague sense for people who are not really well-read in history that religious liberty is sort of a, a given in the history of the church and that some of the challenges that we've seen to religious liberty are a relatively new thing. But in fact, that's not the case. Uh, religious liberty was not the norm in the church, uh, in, in Christian Europe, in Christian America, for a lot of its history. And this freedom that we all value very highly was the product of a long process of struggle and argument and all of these other kinds of things that we'll talk about this evening. So it's important for us to understand the history correctly so that we can have a better sense of how to wrestle with challenges that are coming at us uh, in respect to religious liberty today in the 21st century. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back to early church history to talk, talk about religious liberty, but I do want to set the stage for what's happening in colonial America by saying one or two things about what was going on in Europe during the period of the Protestant Reformation. Of course, I'm sure, uh, as you know, that the Reformation began in Europe in the 16th century and continued in different phases for more than a century after that. But obviously, prior to the Protestant Reformation, at least in some sense, 
uh, Western Christendom was united as part of the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, there had been a separation from the Eastern Orthodox Church hundreds of years earlier. But if you're talking about uh, Western Europe and the British Isles, those folks all acknowledged the Pope as the head of the church on earth, and they all maintained some kind of communion with each other uh, for the most part. And there was some variation. There were, there were differences of opinion on a lot of different questions in the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. But, but as you know, that Protestant Reformation shattered that religious unity. But religious unity was something that was still very highly prized by people throughout Europe, both uh, ordinary people and also rulers. And one of the consistent things that we see happening in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries is that there is this effort by rulers to continue having religious unity within the territories that they rule. So the idea of religious toleration or the idea of religious liberty simply wasn't there um, in most places. Of course, in Roman Catholic territories, following the Protestant Reformation, if you were a Protestant, you could not worship freely in those areas. You would be hauled in before the Inquisition and have some kind of penalty applied to you. In countries like Spain and Portugal, you know, there are still burning at the stake uh, going on uh, into the 18th century. So as a Protestant, you could not worship freely in Roman Catholic uh, areas. In areas where there was sort of a mix of Protestant and Catholic people, for example, in the area that today we call Germany, there was no country of Germany in the 16th century. We had this entity called the Holy Roman Empire, and this, of course, is where Martin Luther was. And so the, the northern German states who are siding with Martin Luther are coming into conflict with the southern German states that remain Roman Catholic. They're all supposed to be subjects of the Holy Roman Emperor in some respect. And the religious unity of the Holy Roman Empire was gone as a result of the Reformation. So there's actually a series of wars in the middle of the 16th century called the Schmalkaldic Wars, and these didn't end until uh, a treaty was signed called the Peace of Augsburg in 1555. This is after several years of fighting. A lot of people had been killed, but they uh, were not able to come to, uh, neither side could win a victory over the other. And so this treaty, they basically said, well, we've, we've both tried to fight uh, to impose our will on the other, and we've we've failed. So we're just going to have a kind of like a a religious peace that's born out of exhaustion here. And my autocorrect on the on this uh, slide uh, messed up the Latin phrase for me. The principle that they adopted in the Peace of Augsburg, which some of you may be familiar with, cuius regio, eius religio, which roughly translates to the ruler of a particular German state will decide what the religion of that state is. But so there was a mix of Protestant and Catholic states in the Holy Roman Empire, but within each of those German states, there was supposed to be religious unity. So you did not have religious toleration in any of those areas. The Catholic and Protestant rulers simply said, we're, gonna, we're not gonna fight each other anymore. 
over trying to impose our way on each other's territories. You go over to England, and of course, the English Reformation is kind of an odd thing because there's not, um, it's more about politics or as much about politics as it is about doctrine. But there is a, a serious attempt to try to maintain religious unity throughout that process as they're going back and forth from Protestant to Catholic, and some of you are probably familiar with that history, but you have an act of uniformity passed by Parliament in 1558 when Elizabeth I becomes queen that sort of settles the Church of England permanently as a Protestant church. And uh, then there's another one of these acts of uniformity in 1662. But again, the idea is all English people are supposed to be part of this one church. So there is no concept of religious toleration, really, in any of these areas uh, during the Reformation era. Now, in a couple of places, there are some provisions of toleration extended to certain populations. And one example of this would be in Switzerland. And you may know that Switzerland is divided into these different districts called cantons. Well, in the 1520s, several of those cantons became Protestant and several of them remained Catholic and they wound up going to war with each other in the late 1520s and early 1530s. After some of this fighting, they signed an agreement with each other called the Peace of Kapel in 1531. And under the terms of that treaty, because the Catholics had sort of gained the upper hand in the fighting, they imposed a term, a provision on the Protestant cantons that the Protestant cantons would have to tolerate Roman Catholic minorities in their own districts. But the Catholic cantons refused to extend the same toleration to Protestants. So they were able to pull that off because they had the upper hand in the fighting, although they were not able fully to force Catholicism onto those Protestant cantons. So that's a very limited example of religious toleration that really came out of the relative military strength of the Catholic cantons. If you know anything about French history, you may know that in the middle and late 16th century, there is a big civil war in France called the French Wars of Religion. It goes for more than 35 years. And you've probably heard of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. That's part of that um, civil war. Well, the again, because they were sort of exhausted after decades of fighting between Catholics and Protestants, that... When a new king came to the throne in 1598, this is King Henry IV in French history, he was a Protestant, but he knew that he, was, he would not be able to rule as a Protestant king because the majority of the French population was Catholic. So they cut a deal. He would convert to Roman Catholicism, but then once he was installed as king, he issued a proclamation called the Edict of Nantes that extended toleration to the Protestants in France. So there again, you have some toleration that was really the result of one group being unable to force its will onto the other. So just after all this fighting, they said, okay, well, we're just exhausted. We're not going to fight anymore. Now that uh, toleration of French Protestants was in force until 1685, when King Louis XIV came in and issued a proclamation called the Edict of Fontainebleau, 
which repealed the Edict of Nantes. And after that point, Protestants were persecuted once again in France, and many of them fled France. Some of them came to the American colonies. Some of them fled to Protestant states in Europe. Another example of toleration, which is a little more principled, is what was going on in England during the period of the Interregnum. Now, if you know your English history, you may know that there was a civil war in England in the 1640s, and that ended with King Charles I being executed by the parliament. And so for 11 years in England, there's no king. So they call this period the Interregnum, the period between the reigns. And the dominant figure in the English government during that time was Oliver Cromwell. Now, Oliver Cromwell has a, a very poor reputation among most modern people. Most modern people see him as a kind of um, kind of puritanical killjoy who is out to um, impose his extreme religious views on everybody. In fact, Cromwell favored a policy of religious toleration for all Protestants. And his own view of church government was that it was should be congregational. So each Protestant church would function as kind of an independent entity. Now, his views on toleration did not extend to Catholics, but even in Protestant states across Europe through that period, this idea of religious toleration for all Protestants would was very unusual and uh, much more in line with what our modern understanding of religious liberty is because he believed in the rights of conscience. So the idea that uh, God might be leading people in, uh, people are trying to interpret what God is leading them to do, and they have a certain scope because of, of the conscience that God has given us for being able to try to work that out in their own lives, and that extends to the, the way that they worship. So Cromwell said, yeah, we need Protestants to be able to exercise their religion freely. Again, it's a limited concept of religious liberty, but it was a very real and sincere one from Cromwell's point of view. So we've got a handful of these ideas where, where we have some tolerations at, in some places at some times in the early modern period, but they're, they're very isolated. And in most cases, they are simply a, an expedient policy to try to prevent uh, more civil conflict. Okay, so let's bring it over to, to America then as we come into the period of English colonization in North America. And as you probably know, religion is a key factor in the establishing of most of the colonies, the English colonies in the New World. If you read through the charters of the various colonies as they're established, starting with Jamestown in 1607 and going all the way up to uh, the founding of Georgia in the 1720s, more than 100 years later, nearly every one of these charters has something in it about the spread of the gospel as a motivating factor in the establishing of the colony. They all say we are trying to you know, do this to God's glory. We're trying to propagate the gospel to the, the people who already live in North America. We're trying to extend the uh, teachings of the kingdom of God and so on. It's, it's in all of these charters. And I've just put one example up here, which is the Mayflower Compact, which of course is the, the document that first organizes the Plymouth colony 
in New England. So this, these are the pilgrims in 1620. And I've just copied one phrase here out of that document. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. So listing all of those reasons why they're establishing this colony, the advancement of the Christian faith is, is front and center there. And you see similar language in most of the other founding charters or founding documents of these colonies. So it's a key concern all up and down the Atlantic seaboard. However, in almost all of these colonies early on, there is no idea of religious toleration. There's no concept that, uh, in, in, in most cases, that we're going to have people of differing religious persuasions living together in peace within the same uh, polity. So we often are told that people came to America because they wanted religious liberty. And that's true to an extent. They wanted religious liberty for themselves. They were often being persecuted uh, back in England or on the European continent, wherever they happened to live. And so they wanted to have a place where they could live out their own faith in peace. But that didn't necessarily mean that they wanted to be living next to other people who were living out a different understanding of the faith uh, than they were. So I've, I've heard one historian make the interesting analogy that when, when these groups of people come over and found a new colony, um, in some ways, it's helpful to think of them as sort of like religious orders. Of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, you've got these religious orders where the people who uh, join those orders, take certain vows, right? and they they vow to uphold the the rule of that particular religious order and to live their lives in a certain way and to submit to a certain kind of religious authority. And in some ways, the groups of colonists who came over to some of these uh, colonies, particularly those in New England, are sort of self-selected people who are going to live out a particular religious vision. Now, of course, they're, they're people who are married and they have kids and they're hoping to pass that religious conviction on to the next generation. But the idea that they're all going to come over and immediately adopt some sort of, uh, sort of enlightenment influenced uh, or you know, very modern concept of religious toleration really is not... Uh, a realistic expectation. So these are people who are very dedicated to a particular vision and they want to live out that vision together in this colony. So you see that reflected in a lot of their documents early on. I've got on this slide uh, an excerpt from the Articles, Laws, and Orders in Virginia in 1610 and 1611. Now this is a period when Virginia was actually, the Jamestown colony was actually under martial law because of all the problems that have been going on there. And there's a lot of language that I have not included, but you'll get a taste of it from this quote. This is the, um, the governor of the colony, Thomas Gates, who is the I in, in the quote. I do strictly command and charge all captains and officers of what quality or, or nature soever to have a care that the Almighty God be duly and daily served, and that they call upon their people to hear sermons as that also they diligently frequent morning and evening prayer themselves, and that such who shall often and willfully absent themselves be duly punished according to the martial law in that case provided. So what's Gates saying here? He's saying that 
everybody in the Jamestown colony needs to go to church regularly. And if they don't show up to church, then there's going to be certain punishments uh, levied upon them. And these are the same kinds of provisions that you would have seen in England at the same time. These are called recusancy statutes. If you, if you are absent from the regular church services, then you could be fined or imprisoned uh, on multiple offenses. So this kind of thing comes over to the colonies early on. Here's a couple of other examples from the Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts. This is the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1647. It is therefore ordered by this court and authority thereof that if any person or persons within this jurisdiction shall either openly condemn or oppose the baptizing of infants or go about secretly to reduce others from the approbation or use thereof or shall purposely depart the congregation at the administration of that ordinance or shall deny the ordinance of magistracy or their lawful right or authority to make war or to punish the outward breaches of the first table and shall appear to the court willfully and obstinately to continue therein after due means of conviction, every such person or persons shall be sentenced to banishment. So this is the anti-Anabaptist clause of the Virginia uh, legal code at that time. So if you're familiar with the Anabaptists and their theology, these are the people who really wanted to see more of a, a separation of the religious life from the uh, civic life, and they thought that the state had no appropriate role to enforce any kind of um, religious principles or anything like that. So the language in here about uh, if, if you are arguing against uh, the baptism of infants, or if you deny that the government has the right to make war or to punish certain religious infractions, then we'll kick you out of this colony. And there were a number of people banished from Massachusetts for violations of, of this provision. Look at the next one. This is also from Massachusetts, that no Jesuit or spiritual or ecclesiastical person, as they are termed, ordained by the authority of the Pope or See of Rome, shall henceforth at any time repair to or come within this jurisdiction. In other words, we don't want anybody who has taken religious orders under the Roman Catholic Church to even set foot in our colony. So no Jesuits, no monks, no nuns, they can't even come in. We don't want them to sort of contaminate the vision that we are trying to live out of the Christian life. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com abortion. Now, the one anomaly in the early colonial history, as some of you may know, is Rhode Island. And Rhode Island is set up by a guy named Roger Williams and his followers who were kicked out of Massachusetts Bay. Now, Williams had been a, an Anglican minister early on, but he decided that uh, he disagreed with the theology and that uh, he was 
going to, you know, he was being led by God in a different way in terms of doctrine. And when they set up the uh, Rhode Island colony, Providence colony, if you look at this, this is the entire text of the charter that they set up in 1637, the Providence Agreement. We whose names are hereunder desirous to inhabit in the town of Providence do promise to subject ourselves in active and passive obedience to all such orders or agreements as shall be made for the public good of the body in an orderly way by the majority consent of present inhabitants, masters of families, incorporated together in a town fellowship, and others whom they shall admit unto them only in civil things. So notice here there is a lack of theological language in this document that establishes the colony of Rhode Island. Roger Williams and his followers are not going to establish a civil government that has any kind of religious aspiration. They say simply, we're going to have a civil government and it's going to do civil stuff and it doesn't have anything to do with religion. So here we have this first idea in America of there being some kind of separation of religious life from the life of the civic body. Now, that's a very important idea that um, is built upon later. The other colonies, they did think that the church and the state were different institutions, but all of the other colonies were of the opinion that it's the church and the state ought to be cooperating with each other to um, make a godly life more accessible to the people who live there. But Rhode Island has a different idea, Roger Williams and his people. Um, because of the significance of Roger Williams here, I've listed a, a few of the uh, published works of his. Mr. Cotton's letter, lately printed, examined, and answered. This is in, in response to a guy named John Cotton in Massachusetts who had published a letter sort of uh, criticizing Williams and his views of this uh, more of a, a separateness of the ecclesiastical establishment and the civil establishment. You can tell from these titles that in the 17th century, <laughs> you know, this is, these are not the kinds of titles that any uh, copywriter would sign off on today. They've got these very uh, lengthy titles in many respects, but they do give a pretty clear impression of what's going on in the work. The bloody tenant of persecution for cause of conscience discussed in a conference between truth and peace. So here you've got these two allegorical characters, truth and peace, talking about religious persecution. And then finally, uh, a letter from Roger Williams to the town of Providence in 1654. And this last one, I've got a quote from here because this is significant to understand the developing idea of religious toleration in the colonies. So notice the, the analogy that Williams uses here. There goes many a ship to sea with many hundred souls in one ship whose weal and woe is common and is a true picture of a commonwealth or a human combination or society. It hath fallen out sometimes that both papists and Protestants, Jews and Turks may be embarked in one ship upon which supposal I affirm that all the liberty of conscience that ever I pleaded for turns upon these two hinges, that none of the papists, Protestants, Jews, or Turks be forced to come to the ship's prayers of worship, nor compelled from their own particular prayers or worship 
if they practice any. So here's what William says he means by his view of religious toleration. Nobody is forced to go to a church service that they don't want to go to, and nobody is prevented from attending a, a worship service that they do want to go to. Now, the interesting thing is that he says, in every other respect, you know, the, the magistrate, the civil government can require people to do whatever it wants to do. So this particular letter was actually written in response to people who were saying, Roger Williams doesn't think that the colony ought to have the authority to force its people to serve in the militia, you know, to defend the colony. And Williams's reply is like, oh, I think it's fine for the magistrate to force people to serve in the militia. I just don't think it should force them to go to church where they don't want to go to. So this is not some sort of libertarian view of government uh, by any means. This is simply Williams saying there is a, partic a particular zone of conscience uh, when it comes to worship of God that the government should not invade. Now, Later on, we get people making broader arguments for religious liberty that are significant. But I think, you know, this is kind of a modest start here in the middle of the 17th century. Most of you know the name William Penn. This is the guy who's responsible for the, the founding of the, the colony of Pennsylvania in the 1680s. And you may know that Penn was a Quaker. So he was a member of a religious minority and he was interested in establishing a colony that would sort of be a, a safe haven uh, for Quakers, but knowing that uh, there probably weren't enough Quakers to have a viable colony, he also says, well, we're going to have other people here too, but we need to figure out some way that we can get along with each other and live in civil peace together, even if we're not all worshiping God in the same way. So, here is a quote from the Frames of Government of Pennsylvania. This is the Pennsylvania Charter, basically, in 1682. And he quotes Romans chapter 13, which, of course, LCI has done a lot of uh, discussion of. I assume that most of you are familiar with some of the contents of Romans 13 and its admonition to Christians to obey the powers that be. But here's what the uh, frames of the government of Pennsylvania says after quoting that passage. This settles the divine right of government beyond exception, and that for two ends. First, to terrify evildoers. Secondly, to cherish those that do well, which gives government a life beyond corruption and makes it as durable in the world as good men shall be. All right, so Penn endorses here this notion from Romans 13 that the government is there in order to punish the wicked and praise the good. But he goes on to say that uh, this punishing of the wicked and praising of the good is, is really about you know, civil disturbances and civil unrest. It's not really about the way people worship God. So another document for Pennsylvania, the laws agreed upon in England, has this provision, uh, number 35. Notice the language here. All persons living in this province who confess and acknowledge the one almighty and eternal God to be the creator, upholder, and ruler of the world, and that hold themselves obliged in conscience to live peaceably and justly in civil society shall in no ways be molested or prejudiced for their religious persuasion or practice in matters of faith and worship, nor shall they be compelled at any time to frequent or maintain any religious worship, place, or ministry, whatever. 
So we've got uh, another step in this development of the argument for religious freedom here. This is not a, a full-blown religious toleration for anyone and everyone. There is a requirement that you must be a theist and that you must be a monotheist. All right, but it, but this idea, if as long as you confess and acknowledge the one almighty and eternal God, that encompasses every professing Christian. It also encompasses Jews and Muslims. And there were a fair number of Jews that uh, came to Pennsylvania in the 17th and 18th centuries. So the idea here is that we can live together in civil society, in peace, as long as we agree, as long as we've got a, like a bare minimum of confessional unity and that we all believe in God, and we all agree that we have a responsibility to live peacefully. So Penn says, as long as we've got that, there's no reason to try to enforce religious unity. So this is an, a, a very different way of looking at things than what you would have seen anywhere in Europe a hundred years earlier. Uh, this is a, a big change. But this is the model that becomes more common in the colonies as we go through the 18th century. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here to a guy named Elisha Williams. We're, we're fast forwarding about 60 years now. And if you've never heard of Elisha Williams, he was a pretty prominent guy in Connecticut in the mid-18th uh, mid century. He's a Congregationalist pastor. He was a rector at Yale. He was a member of the Connecticut Assembly, and he also served as a judge in Connecticut. So he is a pretty prominent guy in that colony. And he writes a book called The Essential Rights and Liberties of Protestants in the year 1744. Now, there's been a big development in the discussion about rights and freedom uh, between William Penn and uh, this work, and that is the writings of John Locke. And what we see now in the 18th century is that a lot of the authors who are talking about religious freedom use Lockean language in order to advance their argument. We've got this statement here early on in the essential rights and liberties of Protestants that the great end of civil government is the preservation of their persons, their liberties and estates, or their property. All right, well, that's straight out of, of Locke. This is something that you see argued in the second treatise on civil government. You also see it argued in Locke's uh, letter on religious toleration, which was, uh, this is like 1680s, early 1690s, when these works are published. And uh, the author here takes the same position as Locke as sort of a social contract idea that, yes, we have to give up some of our natural liberty in order to ensure that we have civil peace, but we only give up enough liberty just enough liberty to make sure that that goal can be accomplished. And then we retain all the rest of our natural liberty. So he goes on to say, the members of a civil state or society do retain their natural liberty in all such cases as have no relation to the end of such a society. So if it's not related to what the goal of civil society is, life, liberty, property, then we keep all that liberty for ourselves. By the way, all these quotes that I've put up on, on, the, uh, on the PowerPoint, everything in italics 
is italicized in the original documents. Uh, if something is in bold, that's something that I've added. I should have mentioned that early on. But then notice um, what I think is sort of the kicker here, which comes a little later in the document. The members of a civil state do retain their natural liberty or right of judging for themselves in matters of religion. This right of judging everyone for himself in matters of religion results from the nature of man and is so inseparably connected therewith that a man can no more part with it than he can with his power of thinking. So here we've got this language. This is the same sort of language that Jefferson uses in the Declaration of Independence. This is the language of unalienable rights. It can't be taken away from you. No one can give up this natural liberty. And that is, again, a very Lockean way of looking at this idea of rights. And it's one that had been widely adopted in the colonies in the course of the 18th century. So here we are, 1744. This is a generation before the Declaration of Independence, but it's very similar sounding language here. And this was an influential track that was widely read uh, throughout the colonies. Let's fast forward up to the 1770s and uh, another influential work, An Appeal to the Public for Religious Liberty by Isaac Bacchus, who was a Baptist minister. And so now he's some of this stuff should be sounding sort of familiar by this point. He says that uh, the civil government and the church government are different things. They get their authority from different places. And this is a key idea for him. Civil government is a human institution. And he writes, whereas in, in ecclesiastical affairs, we are most solemnly warned not to be subject to ordinances after the doctrines and commandments of men. So Bacchus says, when it comes to the church, we've got to get our directions you know, from God. But civil government is a human thing. It's something that is historically contingent, and we set it up to try to uh, you know, use prudence and so on to try to uh, maintain civil peace. But it's a human institution, whereas the church is a uh, divine institution. Then he says, and this is an interesting move here that, again, draws on some Lockean ideas, that as the putting any man into civil office is of men of the people of the world, so officers have truly no more authority than the people give them. And how came the people of the world by any ecclesiastical power? So this move that he makes here is that civil government's a human institution. Officers in the civil government only have the authority that the people have given to them. But what authority do the people have to control the consciences of other people? The people in their natural liberty do not have ecclesiastical authority. That comes directly from God to the ordained ministers of the church. So the uh, civil magistrates don't have any business trying to tell the church what to do. So this is an argument uh, for religious freedom that says, you know, the, the state simply has no business trying to tell us what uh, the church can do. It's outside its zone of authority. So this is not just, it, it would be imprudent for the state to do this, or the state should refrain from this because where we go to church doesn't really threaten civil peace. This is an argument that says the state has no business interfering with what uh, people do in the church. And then I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap up here in just a couple of minutes so we can take some questions. But 
Coming up to 1776, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which many of you have probably seen before. This is a document that was drafted by George Mason. And the key provision here that deals with religion is section 16. It's the final section of the document. That religion or the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And therefore, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience, and that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. Now, it's interesting that in the original draft of this document, Mason had said religious toleration, and then James Madison and some others urged a change in that wording because they said, if we call it religious toleration, that could give the impression that it's simply something that the government could take away from us if it wanted to, but it's just you know being lenient and tolerating uh, religious differences. Whereas when we say the free exercise of religion, that makes it sound more like a, a fundamental right, which is what they thought it was. So this is the language that is, has become sort of mainstream throughout the colonies right on the eve of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm, I'm stopping in 1776 here because I, I figured, and I projected this accurately, I would probably run out of time if I tried to go to the next generation uh, and talk about the Constitution and so on. But here's the situation as we're about to declare independence in 1776. You've got religious toleration throughout the colonies. Almost everywhere, it's no longer, for example, illegal to be a Roman Catholic. I mean, that, that's, that stuff has been uh, wiped off the law books just about everywhere. So you can live pretty much anywhere in the colonies and worship freely. However, there are some restrictions still in place with respect to religion. So several states still had established churches, which meant that if you lived in that state, you would be paying taxes to support that established church, even if it was a church that you did not attend and that you disagreed with. So that was a thing that they continued to argue over for the next generation or so. You also, in uh, a number of states, had test oaths that were required in order to hold a public office. Now, you may recall that in the U.S. Constitution, when it was adopted, they explicitly said no test oaths. You, you don't have to take a particular oath confessing a particular theological belief in order to hold federal office. But at the state level, you still had a lot of these things. Uh, even in a state like Pennsylvania, for example, you had to, in the Pennsylvania Constitution in 1776 said, you had to state that you believed that both the Old and the New Testament were the inspired word of God. So that prevented uh, Jews and Muslims, for example, from holding uh, office in Pennsylvania, but it did encompass all professing Christians, including Roman Catholics. So there's a debate that's still going on over the full civic participation for religious minorities. So we don't have a situation where there's complete religious liberty in the sense that no matter what your faith is, you can fully participate in civic life. But you do have religious liberty in the sense that you're not going to get thrown in jail or have legal penalties imposed on you for worshiping in a certain way. 
So that's the situation on the eve of independence. So let me recap really quickly. Um, Again, religious liberty was not the norm in the early modern period, and it was not an obvious thing to the uh, first colonists who came over here. This is something that the arguments for it developed slowly over a period of 150 years. Early on, a lot of religious toleration where it did exist was really a matter of convenience. You know, we we didn't, uh, n- neither side in a religious conflict was, was able to dominate the other and impose its will. And in some cases, you know, like a lot of enlightenment figures, people like Voltaire would just say like, well, religion is not important enough to fight over. I mean, we, we don't believe this stuff anyway, so so why should we fight over it? So that is a different thing from the idea of religious toleration or religious liberty on principle and those arguments for liberty excuse me religious liberty on principle are slowly developed during this time and and pretty fully developed by the time we get to the declaration of independence although there's still some work to do but there's the argument, as we said early on, that toleration is not going to compromise the civil peace. We can all still live together peacefully, even if we're worshiping differently. And then they go from that to say that the government really has no authority, no lawful authority to interfere with people's practice of their religion because freedom of religion is a natural right. Then we've got finally as we saw in the Declaration of of Rights in Virginia, this argument that that is repeated very often in the late 18th century, virtue and orthodoxy cannot be compelled. It must be freely embraced. And so attempts to penalize people legally for their religious faith is, is actually counterproductive. So these are the arguments that are developed over time. There's a lot more uh, to say about them. Let me mention a resource here that can give you a lot more source material for this. There is a great uh, primary source reader called The Sacred Rights of Conscience. The Sacred Rights of Conscience. The editors of that book are Daniel Dreisbach and Mark David Hall. And uh, Doug, if you can maybe put a link to that, maybe an Amazon link or something uh, to that book. In the, in the chat window. I think it's published by Liberty Fund. And uh, most of the documents that I've quoted here tonight are, are found in that, do- in that reader. It's something like 600 pages long. It takes you all the way up to the 1820s. And it's a great, great resource for learning more about the development of these arguments for religious liberty in early America. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.
Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.